four to six-year-olds can be dismissed to junior church. And we have one more administrative announcement. We still need to welcome in two more members into the church membership, Ted and Hudson. So after the service today, they will be standing in the hallway with myself. If you could come out and just welcome them as we did last week into our church membership, that would be awesome. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 1, please. Romans chapter 1. Today begins our second sermon here in the book of Romans. Remember I said last week, this is widely regarded to be the greatest book of the New Testament, if not the whole Bible. It is awesome. And uh, just by way of review, the first six or so verses talk about Paul. We remember last week, we said that the theme of the first six verses is that Paul's calling his message, and his mission are all about Jesus. You can see it on the screen there. Paul is a servant of Jesus. The focus of his message is Jesus, and his mission is to proclaim Jesus to the nations. He is consumed by one person, Jesus Christ. And the application for us then was to consider, are we also consumed by Christ? Is he really, as Paul says, I'm a servant of Jesus, are we really servants of Jesus? Is he our Lord? Do we do what he says, submit to his commands? Is Jesus on the tip of our tongue? Are we just almost bursting at the seams to proclaim him to lost people? Paul was. I also showed you just a little bit of a summary of the book of Romans, or an outline you might say. You can see the progression of doctrine as we work through all of the chapters of Romans, ending with a four or five chapters worth of application there at the end. And you might think that perhaps today we're finally getting into that first section about God's wrath. Not quite. We still have a little bit more introductory material to work through. That's verses 8 to 15, our text this morning. Uh, the audience is what we're going to really consider here as Paul now shifts from talking about himself in verses 7 and 8 to addressing who he is writing the book to. And we can see there in verse 7 who Paul's audience is. He says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Hence, since he is writing to Rome, it's where we get the name of the book Romans. And before we work through our text this morning, verses 8 to 15, I want us to pause for just a couple of minutes and consider something even as, I'll say, basic as just Paul's audience here. I think there's some significance even in a letter of Paul being written to Romans. Very, very simply, this is the first point, Paul's writing Romans 25 years after the death of Christ. And in that 25 years, we know he's writing to believers. We would conclude then that the gospel has already made it to Rome. This is pretty fascinating because Jerusalem and Rome aren't neighboring cities, right? It's not like Methuen and Salem. Yes, they're in different states, but they border each other. Perhaps this map will give you an idea as to how far the gospel had to spread 
You can see Jerusalem right there at the focal point where all of those circles converge. And Rome is almost in the corner of the screen over there. If you were to take a boat to Rome, it's roughly 1,400 miles. If you were to take the long way around and kind of stay on land, that's about 2,500 miles. And in 25 years after the death of Christ, Paul is writing a letter to believers in Rome. The Gospels made it that far in a short amount of time. And we might ask, well, who took it there? Well, we do know one thing. We know who it wasn't. Look at verse 10, if you will, in our text this morning. Paul says, Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Jump down to verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Very clearly, Paul is telling us here, it wasn't me. I haven't even been to Rome. So the gospel has gotten to Rome apart from Paul's efforts. Uh, That's kind of interesting for us to think about. And if it wasn't Paul, are there any clues in Scripture as to who might have brought the gospel to Rome? Well, I'm not going to be dogmatic here, but I think our Scripture reading this morning may have given us a hint as to how that happened. You see all of these names of other cities on the map there, if you can read it. Those aren't random. We've seen those cities already today. These are the cities mentioned in Acts 2, where we are told that there are devout Jews dwelling in Jerusalem from all nations of the earth. And all of these cities are mentioned. Pontus, Media, Parthia, right? We know all of them. And in that list, we are specifically told that there were visitors from Rome. And if these people were visitors, then they're going back, right? And they're going back with something that they didn't come with the gospel. We're told on this day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, first they hear Peter and the disciples speaking in tongues and they mock them, they're confused, but they hear about the mighty works of God and 3,000 people are converted on this day. Is it possible that some of these very people head back to Rome and bring the gospel there themselves? I think it's very possible. And I think that really this helps us realize that for as influential as the Apostle Paul was, we think of him as a giant of the New Testament, right? He wrote 13 books of the New Testament. He's called the Apostle to the Gentiles. He's going on all of these missionary journeys. For as big a figure as he is in the New Testament, this church exists apart from him. And we would realize that Jesus is also doing a work through other people that there are nameless and faceless individuals who have brought the gospel back to their hometown, to places the Apostle Paul hadn't even been yet. And you can't help but wonder how how many nameless men and women have done this very thing throughout church history, where they receive the good news of Jesus and they take it back to their hometown. 
And like Peter, they say, we cannot help but speak of what we've seen and heard. Can I challenge us to be like that? To not leave evangelism to the professionals, the Apostle Pauls of the world, but to realize that God has put us here in Dracut for a reason, right? Like, no one's sending missionaries to Dracut. We're already here. So, so let's reach our community as these nameless and faceless people for Christ. Is it glamorous? Are we going to get our names mentioned in an epistle? No. Neither were these people. And yet Paul knows about this church, and he addresses them, as we'll see in just a couple minutes, in a really astonishing way. I do want to draw out a second idea from just the audience of this book here. Maybe from a political perspective, how would you describe the relationship between Jews and Romans? It's on pretty shaky ground, huh? You could very rightly say that a lot of Jewish people, or some, viewed Rome as their enemy. People were hoping that Jesus was coming to overthrow Rome. And yet here Paul is in addressing a letter to believers in Rome, including Jews and Gentiles, and it's demonstrating for us that the gospel transcends racial and political boundaries. He's demonstrating that the good news is for everyone. It's not just for people who share the same nationality of Jesus, who have been traditionally called the children of God, in writing an epistle to Roman people, to those who dwell in Rome, we're being told, listen, this is for everybody. Galatians 3 probably words at best what I'm trying to explain here, and we read, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We live in a world that has divided itself into all of these categories, ethnicity and gender and economic status. And here Galatians and here this epistle to the Romans are reminding us we have something in common that supersedes or transcends all of these different things that we like to divide ourselves into. We have Christ in common. Being in Christ is the basis for unity that we, with people that we might have otherwise nothing in common with, even people who on paper might be our enemies, right? So if we think about it, we have more in common with Christians in North Korea than we do our next-door neighbors because we have Christ in common. The gospel is unifying our shared love for Jesus should draw us together. And we'll see some of that unity on display for us in our text this morning as Paul finishes introducing himself and now turns his attention to this church in Rome, and we read this in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. 
That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, at first glance, these verses seem to be just Paul expressing very simply that he would love to come to Rome at some point and encourage the believers and share the gospel. But I think there's more going on here than even just this. Sometimes we can gloss over these introductions. They seem like just a, a gateway to get to the good stuff in verse 16 and 17. But I think there's a lot for us here this morning that we're going to really, really settle down into and, and explore for ourselves. So the first observation is just found simply there in verse 8. Paul begins by thanking God for believers in Rome. He's grateful for these people that he's largely never met before. Why? Well, the rest of verse 8 tells us, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul actually makes a similar remark about the Romans at the end of this book. He says this in 1619, that your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. And we would conclude about these believers then, that they have a strong testimony. That people, even outside of their city, have heard about it. Exhibit A is the Apostle Paul. He's never been, and yet he says, your faith is known to all the world. And for Paul, hearing that there is a group of Christians who are faithfully living out their faith, boldly living for Christ, in the capital, the heart of the Roman Empire. When he hears about this, his heart is moved to gratitude. He says, God, thank you so much that these people exist. It doesn't matter that Paul wasn't responsible for the start of this church. He's not jealous that someone else got that privilege to be uh, the one who brought the gospel to Rome, or uh, he's not indifferent to people that aren't under his direct oversight. He's glad to see God at work. He, he hears about their testimony, and he's like, wow, thank you, Lord, that these people exist and that their faith is so strong. And I think that, that we can ask ourselves a couple of evaluative questions just from this first verse here, verse 8. We could ask ourselves, are we grateful to hear reports of what God is doing around the world? Paul was. Never met these people. And he says, thank you, Lord, that they exist. You might be asking yourself, well, what opportunity do I have to even hear reports like this? Can I just give you one really practical example? We have eight missionaries that we financially support that send us letters regularly. Can I encourage you to read those? They're emailed to all of us. And these people are doing awesome things for God. If you've read them, you know that Bibles are being shipped to predominantly Muslim countries, that uh, one of our missionaries is teaching and equipping the next generation of Canadian pastors to serve God. Uh, Toby, we all know and love him in Cambridge, is having Bible studies with students that will be going back to their home countries and bringing the gospel with them. 
Can you not read these and be grateful at what God is doing around the world? I promise you that as you read them, your faith is going to be challenged and strengthened. You're going to see God is at work in other places besides New England. The same God who is drawing lost people to himself to our church is doing that around the world. And our faith can be strengthened and we can be grateful to see the power of God. Secondly, do you encourage godly behavior when you see it in other people? Perhaps this word should actually be recognize. But Paul says about the church in Rome, hey, your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Can you imagine the Roman church getting this letter from Paul? The apostle Paul wrote to us, what? And within the first couple of sentences, he's already said, your guys' faith, it's known to all of us. Can you imagine what an encouragement that must have been to them? Do you think that the next time they were tempted to maybe fall away from their faith or to, is this really worth it? Should we keep going? You think these words from Paul, hey, your guys' faith is known by all. Do you think that encouraged them? I'm sure it did. And I think that the challenge then turns to us. We have to ask ourselves, do we promote and recognize and encourage the godliness we see in other people? Can you imagine what a place this would be if we were doing that to each other? How encouraged we would be, right? A lot of times it's easier for us to point out the flaws or the inconsistencies we see in other people. But what if we made it a point to just stop and say, hey, you are doing an awesome job following Jesus. Thank you. Keep it up. There's a couple of ways we could do this. Just a couple of easy ones off the top of my head, really, is uh, ones that I had written down. Writing thank you notes to people. We have a lot of people who serve in our church that maybe goes unrecognized. Can we write a note to someone? Maybe it's not even writing a note, but you hear, hey, so-and-so went out to coffee with an unsaved person or another person at church. Could you catch them on Sunday and say, hey, I heard you did this. Thank you. Keep following Jesus. You've encouraged me and my faith to emulate that. This is what Paul is doing here for this church in Rome. Can I remind you of Hebrews 10? This isn't just an idea. This is a challenge from Scripture. We read, let us, stir how, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We'll talk a little bit more about this as the passage progresses, but I think we just have, in verse 8, an encouragement. Hey, be grateful of what God is doing around the world. And two, find ways to encourage and stir one and up another to love and good works. We'll continue on into verse 9. Paul's concern for these people is very evident here. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul says that he prays for this church without ceasing. That language appears in 1 Thessalonians where we're told to pray without ceasing, and Paul is saying, I'm doing that for this church. These people I don't even know. 
For what reason? Well, the end of verse 10 says that by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul desperately wants a chance. He's praying that God would give him this opportunity to go to Rome. Why, verse 11 says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now, pause there. When Paul says that he wants to impart to them a spiritual gift, does he mean that he uh, intends to bring, like, the gifts of the Holy Spirit with them, and he shows up to Rome, and he says, he's looking at, you know, Romans 12, and he's saying, well, you guys lack the gift of administration. Uh, Good thing I brought that with me. Here you go. Uh, No, verse 12 clarifies what Paul means by imparting the spiritual gift to them. He says, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul wants to come and encourage these people in their faith. Now, this makes sense to us. When the Apostle Paul comes to town, he's the one, it would seem, that would do the encouraging. If he came to Grace Bible Church this morning, no matter what we had planned prior to this, Paul would be up here preaching instead of myself. He's just that guy. He's awesome. But notice that it's not just Paul who's going to be doing the encouraging. Verse 12 again says that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul said he's coming to Rome intending to encourage these people, but he also anticipates them to encourage him. He's heard about their faith. It has world renown, and he expects to be encouraged by it. I think it's pretty humble for maybe the greatest Christian who's ever lived to say, hey, I'm not a one-man show. I've not arrived. I haven't achieved, like, peak status in my Christianity. I need you guys, too. And don't we all need this? Because if I'm honest, there are times in my own faith that I'm discouraged, that I'm hurting. Sin seems to just have its claws in me. My faith feels weak. I'm overwhelmed by my sin, and if I'm left to my own thoughts, I can begin to spiral into a cycle of just doubt and despair (laughs) And on more than one occasion, some of you here at church have spoken to me or been an example to me by your own life and have strengthened my own faith. You've reminded me that my faith is not misplaced, that God is good, that there is victory over sin. You guys have encouraged me. And what we have example uh, really portrayed for us here and what the Apostle Paul is saying is that the Christian life is not one that is supposed to be done in isolation. Christianity is not a solo mission. It's not, hey, I've picked myself up by my own bootstraps and I'm just walking through life by myself. Not at all. We all need each other. We all have off days. Certainly God has given us his word and his spirit to encourage us, but let's not neglect another means of grace that he has given us, each other. Paul is saying, 
I am planning to encourage you, but I know your faith is going to encourage me. And you say, where or how does this happen? What context can we encourage one another? Well, Hebrews 10, I have it on the screen here. It doesn't end at verse 24. Notice that it says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Quite simply, this encouraging, this mutual encouraging of believers happens where? At the church. The writer of Hebrews is rebuking people who have neglected to meet together. They're missing out on this encouragement. They are not present to stir up one another to love and good works. And so one of the most obvious places that we as Christians can have this encouragement is right here. I hope you know what it is to come to church and to have your faith strengthened as we sing songs about our hope being in Christ alone. And there's 80 people here that are affirming this. Yeah, my hope's in Christ too. I hope you know how encouraging it is to have people come back here and be baptized and to give their testimony and say, hey, I am trusting in Jesus Christ. This is the change that he has made in my life. I hope you know what it is to observe communion together and to look around and see all of these people remembering the death of Jesus Christ, to hear preaching that is just faithfully, week in and week out, opening up the scriptures and saying, this is God's word to us, to come on a Wednesday and hear our brothers and sisters in Christ pray and pour out their hearts and burdens before the Lord. The church is a place of encouragement. And so if you are here today, and your faith is faltering, and you're asking yourself, should I really keep doing this? Is this Christian stuff really? It's hard. Can I really keep going? I can promise you that the solution is not to spend less time here. It's not, it's not to isolate yourself even further and try and figure out all this on your own. Paul is telling us, hey, believers are meant to encourage one another. So if you're hurting, find someone who's a little bit further along in their walk with Christ. See if they want to go out for coffee or something this week. And you'll find, if you make this a regular habit, that this mutual encouraging of each other's faith is just that. It's not a one-way street. It happens both ways. Sometimes you'll be the one that's encouraged. Other times, you'll be the one that's doing the encouraging. Can I remind you of Proverbs 27? Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. One of the vehicles with which God has ordained for us to be strengthened in our faith is each other. If the Apostle Paul admits, hey, I need to be encouraged by you guys, or I can be, I can promise you, we all need to be encouraged by each other here too. Let's take advantage of this resource that God has given us. We desperately need the ministry of each other as we go through the Christian life. Verse 13, Paul continues. And he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you 
but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul here describes a second reason that he wants to come to Rome. It's not just to visit the believers there and encourage and be encouraged by their faith. Paul says, there are lost people here that I want to share the gospel with. In my mind's eye, I can almost see Paul like a big old dog, like tugging on a leash, like trying to get after something, right? Look again at the language in verse 13. He says, I've intended to come, but thus far have been prevented. In verse 15, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. This man is passionate about evangelism. He, he wants to get to places he's never been. So much so that in chapter 15, he'll say this. Thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. And since the gospel has already made it to Rome, Paul is almost using Rome as a base or as a stopping point to go even further west to Spain. Paul wants to get to the edge of the Roman Empire and bring the name of Christ there. I mentioned Hudson Taylor last week. He and Paul very much share a similar mindset. They cannot sit idly by while there are people in unreached parts of the world that do not know the name of Christ. This is Paul's attitude. I got to get there. If the preaching of the gospel is truly the only way that people repent of their sins and come to Jesus, then I got to go. It compels me to go and share the good news of him with those who are unreached. I mentioned our missionaries already today. I trust you can see why it's so important that we place a priority on supporting them. These people are doing just that. They have really just left all that is familiar to them, their family, their friends, a culture that is familiar, and they have really dedicated themselves to bringing Christ to those who might not otherwise hear. I hope you realize that this desire Paul possesses to bring the gospel to these people is, again, not something that is just for the select few, but it's true of all of us. We have a responsibility here in Dracut to preach Christ to the lost, to warn others, to introduce them to Jesus. I want to answer one final question this morning. We've made it kind of a point to mention several times now that Paul didn't start the church in Rome, that he had never been there at the time of his writing, but he was praying for a chance to go there. Maybe the question then comes to mind, did Paul ever make it to Rome? Did God answer Paul's prayer? Well, turn back in your Bible one chapter to Acts 28. Acts 28 kind of drops us right in the middle of a story that has really spanned several chapters. Back in Acts 21, Paul is falsely arrested. Seems to be a theme in the Gospels and the, you know, epistles here. 
Enemies of Christ will arrest you without cause. And that's what happens to Paul. And for a while, he's kind of passed back and forth among the local levels of government, but there's no real conclusion or justice being served. And finally, Paul exercises his right as a Roman citizen, and he says, I appeal to Caesar. The local branches of government are not getting this trial sorted out. I want to go right to the top. And so begins Paul's journey of traveling from the Jerusalem area to Rome, that 1,400 miles by boat that I talked about a little bit earlier. It's not an uneventful journey. On the way, he's shipwrecked. He's bitten by this venomous snake. But God had promised him, Paul, you are going to stand before Caesar. And he gets there. He's a prisoner. He does have some freedoms, though. He almost has a house, is what I think the text says. And as is Paul's custom, he brings the gospel first to the Jewish people, his own countrymen. And we'll begin in verse 23, just seeing the response of the Jews to Paul's message. Verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, But others disbelieved, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal him. So what Paul is describing here is that the Jewish people at first are kind of curious by his message until he quotes from them this prophecy from Isaiah and they're like, yeah, we're out of here. And what happens next? Verse 28, Paul says, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. We would say that Paul's request is answered, albeit in a way that maybe he wouldn't have preferred. Tradition tells us that Paul is later actually killed in Rome. But here he is in Romans chapter 1 saying, my earnest prayer is to come to you guys. I've been prevented thus far. And God says, I'm getting you there, Paul. And he travels as a prisoner to Rome, rejected by the Jews first, received by the Gentiles, and for two whole years, he gets to preach the gospel unobstructed to the Gentiles. Isn't that awesome? God's sovereignty is so cool and working all of these things out. Uh, We just have one final question as we conclude then this morning. I've said a number of times now that really we see Paul's heart as he addresses his audience here in Rome. He wants to earnestly come to Rome, encourage believers, be encouraged himself, share the gospel with people who have not heard. And so we turn then the attention inward to our own hearts and we have to ask ourselves, are we praying this way? 
and maybe a little bit more pointed of an application is this. Will you pray earnestly, as Paul did, this week for opportunities to encourage other believers and to share the gospel with the lost? Will you commit to that? I mean, seriously, write it down in the first page of your John notes. Make a note of it on your phone. This week, I'm going to follow the model that the Apostle Paul gave us and praying that God would give me opportunities to encourage other believers and to share the gospel with lost people. Is this not a request that God delights to answer? Timothy tells us that God desires all men to be saved. If we're praying for this, I can't help believe that God would say, totally. We, we have seen on Wednesday nights, we've added a series of uh, prayer requests to our prayer sheet, asking that God would bring us unsaved people, that he would bring us people who are unchurched or at a church that is preaching false doctrine, and those requests have been answered. And, and so can't we hear from Romans 1, again, this very introductory section of the book, pray ourselves that God would give us opportunities to encourage other believers, to share the gospel with people. And then can we not maybe next week come back with stories to tell of what God has done? And in so sharing answers to prayer, find out that we're actually mutually strengthening each other in our faith, doing exactly what Paul intended to do in Romans, where we say, hey, God answered this prayer. God answered my prayer. Isn't God awesome? Isn't the God that we serve alive and he hears and he intervenes in our lives? He did this for me. He'll do this for you. This is what we need. Again, at times our faith is weak. At times we are discouraged and despair takes hold of us and our sins loom large and we need each other to remind us God is good. He answers. He loves us. We have a great example of this here in Romans this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we are again grateful for even the introductory material to this awesome book, which today has shown us the responsibility we have as believers to encourage one another. Help us to take this responsibility seriously to look for ways that we can recognize and encourage godly behavior in other people. Lord, as we pray this prayer, hopefully collectively this week, would you answer us? Would you reveal your strength and your power and your own heart for lost people? Give us opportunities to share Christ, to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ to keep going, run the race. Lord, and let us be encouraged as we come back and talk about what you have done, as we've seen your hand work, even though you are invisible, Lord, we still see evidence of your power through answered prayer, through your word, through the lives of other believers. Please, Lord, uh, let us take responsibility uh, seriously that we have here as a local church to just be building one another up, and it's in Christ's name we pray.